Hi there, I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And one of the best ways to do that is to widen our horizons by learning new and fascinating information, and that's why today's show is extra exciting, because we are widening those horizons big time, in fact to the max, and chatting with Anne Drian, the author of Cosmos most possible worlds. Anne and her late husband, Carl Sagan, wrote one of the top-selling science books of all time, Cosmos. Their work led to the creation of one of the most iconic science-based television series in history, also aptly named Cosmos. And now Anne has written the long-awaited sequel to this first seminal work. It's published by National Geographic, and Anne's joining us today to share all about it. Welcome, Anne. I'm so glad to be with you, Mary Anine, on the feisty side of 50, which I definitely am. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. And, yes, we are both quite feisty by this stage, I have to say. But I have to say that you you might have me topped in the feisty department. But I do want to begin <laughs> with, of course, letting you know that, of course, the legions of fans have highly anticipated this book, and many of us remember your late husband, not only with respect, but great fondness. He was such a wonderful personality and man beyond, you know, his brain and his ideas and all that. And one of the things that touched me most is in the prologue of the book, you equate science with love. I was meaning, and I'm borrowing your words here, a soaring experience of trans. So I thought this book, since it's a sequel to the one you wrote with your husband, had to have been a labor of love on a whole lot of levels. It really was, Mary Eileen. It really, truly was. And, you know, I just want to say about Carl, yes, he was that brilliant, prophetic scientist, brave, a solid citizen, but also personally as a husband, as a father, he was my ideal of what a man can be. And uh, I feel like the 20 years we had together, it was such a kind of, uh, it, it, it taught me that, that love looks at the other without flinching, without looking away, loving the real person, not loving the projections or the ideals that you have inside, but really embracing who the other is. And that's exactly the way that science loves nature. It doesn't want to be confirmed in its delusions. It wants to know nature as it really is. And that's, that's a lasting inspiration to me. I can imagine. I can imagine. And speaking of science, and I did mention to you a little bit before we go on air, I am going to say, as a woman who's a couple of years beyond, well, not beyond, that's not a good word to say, older, I will say, <laughs> than you, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you, we did not grow up with a time, when a time when a lot of women went into science, and I'm so grateful to you because uh, I did fine in English, I did fine in social sciences, but once it got to the science, it was not my cup of tea, but a communicator of science has opened a whole new world for me. So how did you begin oh. to love science the way you do? Well, uh, first of all, I'm 71. We know all the same songs. And 
And I grew up in that same very unwelcoming world. I was alienated from science. I couldn't do the math. I found it boring and tedious. But when I became an adult, I began to wonder, who were the first people in the history of our species who looked for a natural cause of why things were the way they are, who didn't just say when it thundered or didn't rain, that it was because the gods were unhappy with what we were doing, with what we were eating and who we were loving and things like that. And, of course, these were the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece. And that's how I came to truly love science. And then, of course, you know, to have the impossibly great good fortune to cross paths with Carl Sagan and to think with him and work with him and build a family with him. That absolutely sealed the deal as far as I was concerned because, you know, to to him and to science, it matters what's true. You can't just say anything that comes into your head. It's important to know what's real because nature will not be deceived. And that's, that's really been my inspiration from the beginning. Wow. And, I too, of course, nature is in peril now. We don't want to get in, down that road too much, but I'm so grateful for this book and, of course, the television series and all you're doing in that. And I promise we'll get to the book in a minute, but one last gush. I have to say you're the first interviewee who's had an asteroid named after her that I've ever spoken to. How did that happen? Well, a wonderful astronomer named Eleanor Glow Helene. Uh, was responsible for that, she discovered two asteroids that are in perpetual wedding ring orbit around the sun. And she named one after Carl and one after me so that we would always be in that wedding ring orbit. And uh, I can't tell you what it means to me. I am sure, and I am sure. Well, now we'll get to the book itself because uh, this book is uh, one that I am going to continually turn to and dive into. It, this requires, you know, uh, reading and reading and reading to understand all the profound ideas and thoughts you've shared. But you say you are not a scientist; you are a hunter-gatherer of stories. So I'm going to let you tell me some of your favorite stories that you shared. Oh, I'd love to. One of them is of you know, a man who no one's ever heard of, uh, but who lived at the turn of the 20th century in the Ukraine. He was an engineer, had a terrible life. But in a trench in World War I, he envisioned a practical means for getting to the moon. And so he wrote a book, and it begins you who are mounting the first mission to the moon, be not afraid. There are no theoretical obstacles to what you are about to do. And uh, he died in the Second World War after a lot of persecution and misery. And when the Apollo engineers were trying to devise a means to get humans to the moon and bring them back safely, they were in a dead end because they kept imagining a big rocket that would go to the moon and land on the moon and take off from the moon and land on earth. It was impossible. And so 
it was only the rediscovery of this man, Yuri Kondratayuk's book, that made it possible for the Apollo mission to succeed. And at the time, no one gave him any credit because it was during the Cold War. Uh, NASA was not interested in talking about someone who lived in the Ukraine. But when Neil Armstrong came back from the moon, he went to this hovel that Yuri Kondratayuk lived in, in the rural Ukraine. He made a pilgrimage. And then ever after, he tried to get people to pay attention to this man. And he's just one of the stories. We have a story about a botanist who was absolutely the most courageous person I've ever heard of. And um, with his misfortune to to live in a time of great brutality, and yet he stood up for science because he was concerned about people who lived in the future. And, of course, that's us. And the reason I tell these stories and many, many more about scientists of whom you've never heard is because I want people to realize that we have what it takes to get out of the mess we created. We have the intelligence, the innovation, the courage. But it's now our turn to stand up. If we don't, we are dooming future generations to horrors that we ourselves could not bear. And so that's the inspiration for this book. It's a vision of this thrilling future that we can still have a trip to the 2039 New York World Fair and what that could be, and well beyond that, to the exoplanets, the worlds that circle other suns, and what could be waiting for us there. It's all of the above. And I hope, I hope it will excite and empower people to work for that future. Oh, gosh, Ann. You know, I'm going to start crying in the middle of this. Oh, my, I have goosebumps. I am just, I mean, your words are so eloquent, uh, spoken, and as eloquent as they are written. And I just, I'm so grateful for this book and this new vision of what science is. And one of the things I don't want to spend, but you did bring it up, you know, that we are, this is from you, we are now officially living in the age of human-caused mass extinction. So your book hopefully will be that trigger, not not to shoot a gun, but to really awaken us to the power that we really have, like you say. That's, that's really the reason that I and the 986 other people who worked on the series that's now airing on Fox, that, that's the, that's, that was our motivation, to arouse, to awaken, to inspire, to touch the future Carl Sagan's that are in our audience who are just waiting for a spark to be ignited so that they can light the way for the future. Well, and I have to say, I watched the first episode last night, and oh my gosh, it was, it's awe-inspiring. It really is awe-inspiring. So, and I just think of all the wonderful things that you've done uh, in the past, and do you have anything that you in mind for your own future that you care to share with us now? I do have a number of projects. One of them is a fourth season of Cosmos, which is kind of percolating in my soul right now and some other things that 
that I'm not ready quite yet to announce, but busy. I love, you know, the fact that at 71, I have these opportunities that when I was a young woman in a different world were really foreclosed to me and to my mother. And so I want to strike while the iron is hot and keep working as long as I can. Well, boy, you have inspired me. You, I know you've inspired our other fellow boomers out there. And, oh, my gosh, Anne, well, thank you for not only your fabulous work and your fabulous life and being the first interviewee that has had an asteroid named after that I've ever had the honor <laughs> to interview. <laughs> this has been a delight. Thank you so much, Anne. Hi, it's been my delight. And, Ariadne, I really hope we get another chance to talk sometime. I would love that. And I'm sure our listeners out there have learned a lot and are more than ready to check out the amazing book published by National Geographic, Cosmos, Possible Worlds. And like I mentioned, that wonderful series, I saw the first one. It's actually uh, series three uh, that I saw the first one of. But anyway, it is great. It's playing on Fox now. And both of them, both the series and the book, are definitely filled with fascinating information that's going to inspire you and want to reach for the stars yourself. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio. Saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.